You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 93 of The Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton, and I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook. And uh, Kevin, it's Sunday. It's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers out there, and specifically the two uh, moms that back our podcast. That's my mom, Lisa. And uh, tell us about your mom. I mean, thinking about it, is it the two best moms ever? Arguably. I would have to say so. Yeah, I think that there's really no argument against it. Judy Cook, my mom. I love her to death. Uh, I mentioned in an earlier take of this very same segment that uh, she was a NASA scientist and a lawyer before she quit both uh, to be a housewife is kind of a demeaning term, but to, to teach me and my sisters to homeschool us to be uh, in the To family. raise you. Exactly right. And she was integral in all parts of that, and integral in you know the successful people that my sisters have become and the you know quasi-successful person I might become. Um, <laughs> I like very, how you use the term might. Yeah, I I mean, it's all potential at this point, but I, a ton of it, you know, I'll say that for myself. It's untapped. <laughs> yeah, we're working on that. It's, it's coming, but <laughs> we can talk about that another time. Uh, my mom, I love my mom, Judy Cook. She's wonderful, and she is, uh, you know, a central point of that family. It, it, she's determined a lot about who we became and who we are. So, uh, mom, if you're listening, and I kind of doubt that you are, but somebody may point it out to you. I love you, mom. Well, uh, happy Mother's Day to you, Judy, and also happy Mother's Day to my mom, Lisa, and I'm going to tell you a a, a quick story real quick. Uh, She was always there to support me growing up and, uh, you know, was one of the biggest cheerleaders in our family, obviously, and uh, I think it was probably eight or nine years old playing select baseball, and uh, I was early to a practice. My mom was there. She would always, you know, play catch with me out in the front lawn, that sort of thing, and uh, one day she decided to warm me up because, you know, we were the early ones there, and... uh, Austin Staten, first first to come, last to leave. Exactly. Uh, when I was like eight or nine. Yeah. Uh, but we were playing catch, and uh, I guess one of her friends or somebody that she knew walked by and said, hey, Lisa, at that same time, I had just thrown a ball. Okay. And uh, my mom looked over to the right to see who was saying hi to her, and then I just yelled, mom. Mm. Baseball hitter in the eye. Horror movie. Yeah. yeah. That was totally my fault. She didn't disown me at the time. So, (laughs) you know, and I I, I believe that she was probably, when people asked her about it, she was probably proud of that black guy for being out there helping you doing what you do. I don't think that she probably even, uh, that's that's what moms are like, right? I mean, I'm speculating. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, it shows that she was out there to support and uh, she continued to throw the baseball with me afterwards. So, uh, shout out to you, mom. And uh, thanks for listening. I know that you listen. You've been in the studio a few times here to uh, watch this broadcast. But, uh, you know, outside of Mother's Day, we actually have uh, two great guests coming after you on today's show. Uh, the first one is going to be Hunter Juracek, the athletic director at uh, the University of Houston. He's not in, in, in his title different in like vice yeah, president. I think, I, I think that was the same thing with Mac Rhodes yeah. as well. I think there's more of like a vice president of something, exactly. something. It's more of a university title, but he's functionally the AD. Over he, yeah, it's, it's the athletic director. I mean, if you're talking to any sports person, that's what they're going to reference mm-hmm. him as. Uh, great interview with him. Uh, Kevin handles that. We'll, we'll get into that interview. How would you say I handle 15 it? or 20 minutes? Uh, you sound like a fanboy. Yeah, okay. Let's just yeah. let's just be up front with the listeners. That's okay. That's I am, okay. I think, wearing... I think U of H fans are going to enjoy it. Yeah, you should, because you guys would be right in line with what I think. Although I've been accused of not being enough pro U of H by the rabid U of H fan base, so who, who knows? But uh, but yeah, it's pretty um, positive on the U of H stuff, so just be prepared for that. I'm, 
not going to ask a lot of hard-hitting questions. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you like baseball, if you like fantasy sports, if you like uh, sabermetrics and whatnot, we've got another great interview, and that's with Michael Rathburn. And you can find him on Twitter at FantasyRath. Uh, I sit down with him, and I speak uh, a lot about the Astros, a lot about the American League playoff race, uh, who we see potentially as teams that can win it all in October, and uh, also who's a fraud. Uh, he specifically calls out the Texas Rangers, which Ooh. I absolutely love. <laughs> and uh, we also talk about trade prospects, because it looks like the Astros are probably going to need another starting pitcher as we uh, get closer to the trade deadline. So uh, there are three names that he mentioned. Stay tuned for that. But one other thing, if you follow him on Twitter at Fantasy Wrath and you tell him that you heard uh, him speak to us on the Weekly Brew podcast, you can possibly win a $25 uh, fantasy baseball almanac. And if you play daily fantasy sports, this is the best bet. Yeah, it's like your golden ticket. I, mean, I think that there's no way you wouldn't be rich uh, within, I don't know, a year hours. or two. Eight, hours. Well, hours. It could be hours. <laughs> Honestly, the way Daily Fantasy works, it could be hours. So, you know, the sky's the limit. But, uh, but no, it is a terrific book, and he has terrific work. And that is an interesting idea. So I think what he requested was that people tweet at him, say, hey, Rath, I heard you on the Weekly Brew. You know, nice to discover you or whatever. That's a great policy in general for any of our guests. If you run across someone for the first time here on this show and you decide to follow them or become a fan of them, tweet at them and say, hey, I loved you on the Weekly Brew. Uh, that's kind of where I came across you. I think people would appreciate knowing that, and that would kind of help us in a way as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, let's, you know, make sure that you follow him uh, at Fantasy Wrath and also Hunter Yurichek is on, active on Twitter as well. Yes, he is. Uh, but Kevin, let's start with the big story of the week uh, Houston Rockets. Yeah. Oh, I mean, a... after they won game four oh. on Sunday night, you, you, you felt confident with them going back to San Antonio that they were, you know, potentially going to win that series. They had to take two of the next three, but you felt that the way they were playing, that could happen. And then through the first half of, Game five on Tuesday night, they looked really good. I think it was vintage James Harden. Uh, granted, you had Nene out with uh, with an injury, but they just looked absolutely terrible losing that game. And and, and, and it was just, I don't know, it was very frustrating to me. They, they lost the game 110-107 in overtime, and they couldn't put it together in the fourth quarter despite the Spurs shooting something like 26%. It looked like they had just reverted back from D'Antoni's system that has worked so well this season into hero ball. And I'm not sure why that's the case. What's the difference? When the ball's always in Harden's hands, what's the difference between quote-unquote D'Antoni's system and quote-unquote movement? Exactly. I mean, and that's it, really. It, whether, whether or not it's successful. So you have a lot of balls that are flying out of bounds, a lot of turnovers in this one. I mean, if those plays get made, right, that is that is within the system. It just kind of shows how ugly that system can get when, for whatever reason, it is not effective. And it, and it, and it, was, frustrating, of, it was frustrating as a fan to watch because yeah. you see Harden hold on to the ball for 15 or 16 seconds trying to get a screen and then, you know, try to drive to the lane and kick it out. But there was no movement. You're not finding the open shooter. And it's not like the Spurs, you know, at that point late in the game, uh, you, you know, all of their key guys were out. Yeah, I know. Like Kawhi I know. sitting on the bench. And, that, and to me, that was frustrating. And if you look at Harden's numbers, he was 0 for 4 with four turnovers in the final eight minutes of game five. If you're an MVP candidate, that's not the recipe for success. That is not the recipe for success for anyone, for the right. reference. Right. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, those, are like, no. those are like my, my numbers if I were to play in that game, exactly. except I'd probably have a little bit more than four turnovers. <laughs> Just be, being like perfectly transparent i don't know if they would give you the ball after number three <laughs> probably after number one right to be honest. <laughs> who is this guy he doesn't have a contract get him out of here um yeah it's uh i'm still i'm still not over it uh, shea serrano went on chris vernon's ringer nba podcast and just danced all over the rockets graves and said he was gonna prance down westheimer with a big spurs flag and i think wearing like a spurs underwear so i just uh, it's 
it's uh, these Spurs fans are, are a struggle to deal with sometimes. And I'm, I'm still in this dark thing where I haven't, it's, it doesn't even feel real to me yet. Because I'll tell you on Twitter, I said I would bet someone in my house if I had it that the Rockets would win the next two games in advance. And it uh, should have happened. It should. I mean, happened. honestly, to me, it looked like the Spurs beat the Rockets twice in game five. I mean, Good <laughs> Lord. I mean, you look at what happened in game six, they just did not show up to play. Uh, they had nine two point field goals made by the Rockets, and uh, that was the fewest by any team in any game in the shot clock era per live sports. That can't happen. <laughs> period right and they just look outclassed losing by more than 30 points on their home court fans were booing them as they were going to halftime and james harden just looked atrocious people say they gave up that's been the the narrative or whatever i'm not even going to speculate on their character or their wills or whatever but what would be the conceivable reason to give up in that game at home none of their players are playing what their best guy is lamarcus aldridge who's been uh, mediocre at best all year granted he had a great game six he did he was horrendous in the first four games of the series and he finally started to show up a little bit in game five but what reason Harden, is there to feel defeated or to yeah, feel exactly. like giving up at the beginning of the Nobody, game? The know? only person that looked like they were competing for the Rockets was Clint Capella. Yeah. And he's playing for, you know, second contract at this point. Mm-hmm. But it was just so frustrating to watch. It looked like Harden was just not there. Uh, there were a lot of people speculating on Twitter that perhaps he was hurt. He said in the post game that he was not hurt. Uh, they were just outclassed. And I think it shows that Popovich is just truly one hell of a coach. And there was actually a stat that I saw this week on uh, Twitter or Instagram. It said that Popovich is the only coach in NBA history mm-hmm. to have defeated every single team in the Western Conference in the postseason. That, that That's insane. That, yeah. And, and I was shocked by that as well. And it just is another star on his resume. I think that, you know, if you talk about greatest coaches of all time, there are guys from eras that I am not even remotely familiar with. Like, you know, when the Celtics were winning all the titles, I think there were, I don't know, six teams and they were all playing like on the Northeast coast. But, uh, but in the modern era, I mean, is there a better coach than Greg Popovich? I don't think you can make a compelling argument for anyone. No, I, I think he's probably the greatest coach that we've seen. Um, in basketball. Question. Now, yeah. what if you compare it to other leagues? I mean, look, Bill Belichick is a guy I would point to. He, he's cagey and weird. He's different than Popovich, but I think they're both considered to be at the top of their game. Who would be better if you're comparing apples to oranges? I, I really don't. I think they're equals. I mean, a championship, you know, I, I, what is it, five to four? Is that right? Yeah, but it's so contextual, you know. Right. Like but not I mean, all the same. But here's thing, the right? thing. They are always in contention. I think and since 1989, the Spurs have only had one losing season. Yeah. That is ridiculous uh you look at what popovich has done you know since he's taken over as the head coach uh it's just remarkable i mean they're always contending in the western conference even when they have star players go out they continue to have success and find success uh and, and they do it with you know without all these like flashy players which i kind of like with their own draft picks too many right. times they, they develop not only incredible. that but it's undrafted free agents oh, that they pick up yeah. and, and to me that that's just remarkable to see that I don't know, you have a guy like Manu Ginobili who in Game 5, 40 years old, Ugh. steps up and has the game of his career. And I don't know, it's it's disappointing as a Rockets fan, but it's also kind of refreshing as a fan of the game of basketball yeah. to see that kind of team. And I, I don't know, it's just... And they're both Kawhi. great coaches. Kawhi is a superstar that is uh, primarily, I think, valuable for... I mean, he's a great offensive player, too. There's no question about that. But he is consistently at the top of the defensive player of the year list. He right. is one of the best defenders in the league. Yeah, I think and it's him of, and Draymond without question. Exactly right. And that's and that's a different breed. You know, all the other superstars, if you look at them, are primarily based around their offensive capabilities and what they do there. So, I, you know, they break the mold and yet are the most consistent team in the world. And it's so frustrating to have to compete against them. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, 
It would have been nice to see them knocked out by Memphis, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. But uh, Daryl Morey said after the uh, Game 6 loss, he said that, quote, we took a big step forward in our championship hopes, improved by 14 wins. We really love this group. We feel like another year with this group, we're just going to be, get better. Uh, we had Daryl Morey on the show back in January, and he told us that a successful season would have been to uh, clinch a top four uh, home court in the first round and uh, win a first round series. And the Rockets did that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, we didn't think that the Spurs would lose the series. We thought the Rockets would probably lose in six. We were correct. Yeah, I actually called Spurs the now that I think about yeah, it. Yeah, we didn't think that it would obviously turn out the way it did, uh, especially as the series progressed. Do you agree or disagree that this Rockets team is set up for success in the long term? Well, I would like to go back and sort of be petty and pick a, a bit of a bone with, I think you and Hunter both screamed at me. It may have just been Hunter when I said, uh, okay, it's a reaction episode. If you listen to that one, if you're one of the few people that did, well, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, will this affect free agents possibly you, signing? You here? immediately went to that before even considering the Spurs series. Because I didn't think they were going to win the Spurs series. It's exactly how I saw it playing out, except for the particulars of how horrible it was. But but yeah, and, and so Hunter shouted me down. He's like, no, we're, we're in the middle of the playoffs, whatever. And he's, I mean, he's charming. I love Hunter, and it's fine that he shouted me down. But but that was given to me. Now, here we are asking the same question. Is this a destination for players? Uh, they have some cap room. I don't know exactly how much. Not max cap room, but, but uh, you know, impact player level room. Do you trust Daryl Morey to go out and find that guy, that perfect piece that's maybe not a superstar? So what is that perfect piece? Well, is, it, is it another guy like Gordon or Anderson, or do you potentially make a play for, I don't know, another potential max player who can play well when Harden is not shooting well in the playoffs? And you look at his numbers, I believe he shot, what, 29% from the, 29% from the field or three-point percentage in the playoffs. You can't have that from a superstar. Yeah. You, need, you need your MVP, like caliber player to come out and play during the playoffs and if if Harton's down who is that second guy to step up yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I've been saying for years the small sample size, and, and the sample size is getting larger every time the Rockets pick the playoffs, and Harden has another uh, another run at this. So it is getting to be a distressing trend that he underperforms, but, you know, I don't know exactly what to make of that. In terms of guys that you want to bring in here, what about Gordon Hayward? I mean, he's probably going to get max money, so he might be out of your window, uh, perhaps, but but he seems like a good complimentary piece that's going to be possibly available. Is there a sign-in trade? I think that would be in uh, in Utah's best interest, but I'm not sure the particulars of it exactly, but I think that's probably how they would look to handle that. Yeah, it should be interesting to see what happens with the uh, the Rockets in the uh, in the off season. Of course, they do not have a uh, a first round draft pick this what about, year. What about bringing in a defender? Who, who's a good defender that might be available? But is that is that really worth it in the system? I know it's, it's that's the thing. I think I think you need a guy who can create his own shot. Okay. Not not just a, a guy who can stand in the corner and shoot. I think you need another guy who can. I don't know if it's come in to play point. And you need a two guard or something like that, or even just a, screw salaries, throw salaries out, throw right. all that out. You get to just cherry pick. Any other player in the NBA from another team, who would you want? Uh, LeBron. You think so? Of course. Why would you not want LeBron on your team? It's not that I wouldn't want LeBron on my team. I'm saying, like, is he the guy I would choose? And Without I, question. Okay. He's in the prime of his career. I, either him or maybe Durant. Yeah. Yeah. This is and, and Durant is going to be a free agent after the end of this year. I don't see him coming to the Rockets. It would be nice if it did happen. But we'll throw a weird one at you. John Wall. And, and maybe oh it's recency gosh. bias, but 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 John Wall. I mean, he's he's been one of my like low key favorite players forever. So we t- we talked about about this on Friday night. I, I I sent you a text message saying that I would rather have John Wall on my team than James Harden in the playoffs. <sighs> and you look at it. I mean, you just look at the way they speak after the game. I mean, Wall was like, you know, I I had a bad first half. I had to come out and you know pick this team up. I think he had three points in the first half of game six. He ended up scoring like 25 or 28 in the, in the second half. And of course, at the game winning three, uh, with just a few seconds left on the clock. But 
he has that clutch factor. He's going to do whatever it takes. And he, you could tell that he wears his emotions on his sleeve, that he is 100% passionate about the game of basketball, and that he doesn't like it when people talk trash to him. I mean, he, 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 you, <laughs> you saw, yeah, I mean, you saw his comments after the game saying, you know, don't come in here and act like it's a funeral. Don't yeah. wear black. Um, did, did you see the uh, free throw where he called yeah. someone a hoe? Yeah. And then later lied and said he was talking to Otto Porter calling him O. <laughs> right, right. I like that for my, my, my players. I, want, I yeah. want the players to have a killer instinct. Kobe, love him or hate him, he had a killer instinct. Yep. MJ, killer instinct. Harden, I don't think he has that. Yeah. I mean, you look at Harden, what did he do after the game? He went to a strip club. And I, have, I would go on the record saying I have no, I'm not in favor of strip clubs. I have my moral issues with them. I don't like going to them or whatever. But I would never you know, say someone else couldn't. And his season was over. There was nothing he was preparing for at right, that point. Right, but I mean, just what are the optics not when, it's great. Your, when it's your max player guy who's getting paid $200 million from Adidas who hours after losing a game in atrocious fashion, which John McClain called uh, you know, the, the, probably the worst, most embarrassing playoff defeat in Houston pro sports history. Hmm. What does it say about you as a player and a leader when you go to a strip club with Kylie Jenner? Uh, n- not that much, I don't think. I think his personal life is his personal life. I wouldn't want to uh, harangue him for it or, or get into him for it or whatever, but it is uh, weird to see um, that family back around in our circles again. That's a little disturbing to me. Yeah, I thought he learned his lesson. There was a whole yeah, like, series of articles the Kardashian family. <laughs> but uh, let's pivot from you know talking about the Rockets' playoff loss to uh, one guy who was, I guess, a bright spot in Game 6, and that's uh, Clint Capella, uh, young post player. Uh, he's potentially in line to get a, uh, a contract extension. And, and to me, it's interesting. There was a note this week from uh, Adam Spillane who said that Daryl Morey has never signed one of his first-round picks to an extension after the rookie deal. He suggested that Capella could be the first. That, to me, is kind of surprising. That's a bizarre um, stat and, and, and weird, actually, when you go back and think about it. I, it wasn't until it was pointed out to me that I realized it. But that is I – mean, what do you think that says? I mean, does that say that, uh, you know, he's not – that they're not doing a good job of selecting in the first round? Because there's a lot of reasons you wouldn't re-sign the player. No, I, I think it means that Maury's not afraid to trade draft picks. Sure. I think it's I, I think he's not afraid to find a player that is out there in the free agent market that he can leverage for more picks or somebody, you know, cap space or something like that. But, I mean, you look at uh, the history of first-round picks that they've uh, they've had under uh, Daryl Morey. It, it's not like they've been superstars. I, I mean, who, who was the one... The, I don't know. It, to me, it makes sense. You look at, just go down that list. Uh, I don't know. I trust Maury. There is. What do you trust him with, though? What, what is his strength, do you think? Because nobody does everything perfectly. What does he do best? He understands the system. And he understands the players that he needs in that system. Uh, I think he might need to make some adjustments in the offseason. Uh, I think he knows now that James Harden cannot do it all. I think he knows that James Harden probably played too many games uh, this year. I think uh, I think too it was minutes too, I, I think it was Nick Wright who uh, tweeted out uh, probably game five or game six after Harden looked absolutely gassed. Uh, he said, uh, you know, all of those people that criticize, you know, Popovich for resting Kawhi or Golden State for resting Steph or Cleveland for resting LeBron, maybe they were onto something. You know, yeah. you look at Westbrook, you look at uh, you look at LeBron. Oh, I'm sorry, you look at James Harden. Both of those guys played 80-plus games this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, their legs were gassed, and especially in Game 5, where the Rockets were forced to use a seven-man rotation. 
I, I don't know. I mean, Harden couldn't even create on his own, and you know, the last eight minutes of the game. So I would draw you a parallel to the Golden State Warriors, a seventy-three win team. You know, they kind of had that collective goal that they met, right. and people said it exhausted them for the finals run. They ended up losing it there. I, I don't this know. This might be the Rockets' version of that. It, uh, James it could, Harden was going be, for MVP, but I think I think that I think potentially though, you have to look at. Steph Curry's health because obviously he had the injury issues in the first round against the Rockets where a lot of people speculated that he could be out for the you know the duration of the postseason I think that probably had more to I'm do with it I'm just saying they, there was when they came back whether or not that was true at the time there was certainly a different mentality they were not shooting for getting the most wins ever in an NBA season they sort of had accomplished that it was already a star on the resume and they moved on with a different mindset I think that benefited them Obviously, a lot of other things did as well. I think you could see the same thing happen with Westbrook, with Harden coming back next year. You know, uh, maybe whichever one wins the MVP will feel even more this way. But they've already kind of made their case there. Now, maybe you fit more into the team concept or you take a different approach. You don't feel like you have to do you don't have to play 82 games in, in 40 minutes a game, you know? Yeah, we'll see what happens. Uh, again, the Rockets do not have a first-round pick in the uh, upcoming NBA draft, and I think they are probably going to re- re-sign Capella. I think there's Capella's a lot of upside. Capella's one I to ask about, though. Yeah. What, what, uh, where do you see him developing? Because he's, he's, he's a very talented within what he does well. He has a, a great skill set, I think, but I don't know what I see him adding to his game necessarily in order to be more versatile and more of a, an impact player. He seems kind of like I what he is. Yeah, I don't know that he has a frame also to build size. I, I like how he can run the floor. Yeah, uh, that's good. He's a, he's a good low post defender. Um, he's not really going to do much for an outside shot. He's great at catching lobs from uh, James Harden. I don't know. I think he probably fits well for a team that likes to push the tempo. Um, but it also shows that a guy like Nene is very valuable to mm-hmm. this team. A guy who can come down low and bang. And Capella can't do that yet. And do you think he will? Because you start. I, I don't. Frame. I don't think he has the size. I don't think he has the size or the frame to put on weight. Uh, we'll see. I Keem mean, Elijah one was pretty skinny as well. Now I'm not comparing Capella to Elijah, but okay. you know, if, if Capella could turn into a Keem, I mean, that would just even half the player that Akeem was. I think the Rockets are in good shape. Yeah, I mean, anywhere a tenth would be awesome. <laughs> but yeah, so Rockets season done. I don't want to dwell on it too much. I mean, we've already spent about 10, 15 minutes talking. It about was it. a success. Remember? Yeah, and that, that's one thing. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to lose sight of what happened in the series and kind of let that distract you from the fact the Rockets had one hell of a season. I yeah. mean, they beat expectations. Uh, it, it was kind of frustrating, though, to see the Rockets put a, a post on social media. Saying, no, I knew you were going to go here. Yeah, who, who said that the, you know, the Rockets were only expected to win 30, 31 games this year. I mean, that's not true. I mean, Vegas projected 41 and 41. I, I don't like... Maybe, maybe it was a typo. Maybe they meant 41 and they no, just typed No, it was, it was not a typo. It was, it, to me, it was like making excuses. No. Like, I, yeah, I think as fans, we can be ticked off about what happened in that second round, especially with, you know, it was just laid out on a platter for you to advance. What's your tweet there? Let's say you had the social media intern's job for that, you know, 25-minute span there. What are you tweeting out instead of what they said? Thank you, Rockets fans. That's it? We'll see you next year. I would tweet out some kind of like, yeah, this was as horrible to us as it was to you guys. Or something, something like the season didn't end the way that we wanted it to, but we're ready to grind and be back next season. I think be totally transparent with it. Go, that was, that was terrible. I don't know. I, I felt that they were making excuses yeah. in, in that tweet. And to me, that's, that's frustrating. But uh, speaking of someone that makes excuses, uh, the president of the United States, uh, <laughs> Donald Trump, Political. Uh, yeah, getting into politics for a second, sort of, uh, fired uh, FBI director James Comey over the week. And uh, a lot of controversy surrounding that. Uh, we're not going to get into the controversy specifically, but there were uh, some gambling odds mm. that were uh, placed out there. And uh, of course, we've talked about gambling uh, multiple times on the podcast. It's weird how it keeps coming up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's shocking to me. But uh, <laughs> 
uh, but there were some odds placed out there. We'll just run through them real quick. And again, uh, all of these odds are regarding POTUS, and these are yes answers. And the first one is uh, the POTUS to resign the presidency in his first term plus 125. That means if you bet $100 and that happens, you win 125. What do you see? Well, if you're going to take it, act on it now because we're only getting you know closer to the end of it every day. So that's. Uh, but I don't. He, does he seem like a type of guy that resigns? He seems like the type of guy who would not resign even when he should. I think that's probably a fair point, but I think at the same time he's also a multi-billionaire who uh, had a really lav- lavish lifestyle. Easy. I mean, he had yeah, a lavish I mean, according, lifestyle. According sure. to his tax returns, yeah, he is. The ones that we've seen from yeah. Rachel Maddow, who spent 20 minutes talking about nothing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. I mean, I, I think that he could resign and you know claim like health issues as uh, who was it? Howard Stern suggested about a week or two on his show. Do you like Howard Stern? Not really. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he's so respected among people I respect, but I just don't like him. Yeah. No, he's he's an, he's he, he's good at what he does, he obviously. Is. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think that's I think that's probably the best play of these next four options. But the next one, uh, we'll kind of combine these two to be impeached by the House in his first term and to be convicted by the Senate. Uh, impeachment by the House is plus 115. Conviction by the Senate, plus 500. And so you, there is no option to bet against these. These are only going to no. pay off if it happens. No. Wow. That's that's tough. Impeach conviction, like as bad as Trump is, you're talking about a House and a Senate that are uh, obviously very favorable to him. So that seems like a long shot to me, and the odds are uh, are in accordance with that. Plus 500 to be convicted by the Senate in his first term. Yeah, I, I just don't see that happening, only because the Republicans right now control both the uh, the House and uh, the Senate. Maybe things change in 2018 if you know uh, the Republicans continue to bomb as they are doing right now. But uh, last two odds here: 25th Amendment, Section 4, to be invoked in Trump's first term. That's plus 225, and the last. When is Congress to decide against Trump under the 25th Amendment in his first term plus 350? Do you see those as any possibility? Well, I'll tell you my philosophy towards gambling. Uh, that is too complex for me to understand. So I would just I would <laughs> just stay, stay away from take it. it off the board for me, basically. Fair point. And uh, yeah, it's just kind of interesting to we are in the position right now to even have these gambling odds out there. I mean, there were a lot of people that didn't like Barack Obama. A lot of people didn't like President Bush. A lot of people didn't like Clinton. It seems like it's always 50-50, but never did we see those sort of odds. Yeah, come out on the president, and I think that's just an indictment of the job that he's done. And maybe uh, that gambling is gaining kind of a foothold because obviously in Europe it it's erratically. You would know more than I do. You spend a lot of time <laughs> in Europe, but but it is much more accepted over there. I think we're moving in that direction. Adam Silver, uh, one of the commissioners, uh, you know, that is kind of he's on board in that effort, and I, I'm all for it. I mean, yeah. I, there's no and reason. Of course, it of be course, we've seen you know the NFL maybe sort of embrace it by the Raiders moving to Las Vegas. So we'll, we'll see what happens. They but. will always hedge <laughs> and have no moral ground whatsoever. Yeah, but, uh, you know, we're going to get into more metrics here in just a moment with uh, Michael Rathburn. But uh, before we get into that, we also want to give a shout out to the Power Home Remodeling Group. That's BG, Tebow, Kenneth, the Sales Assassin, Corey, Sean, and Josh. Uh, we hear that they also like gambling. So that segment was sort of for you. Yeah, it was for them. We, we forgot to dedicate it ahead of time, which would have been good. So retroactively, guys, I hope you're still listening. We do appreciate you guys. But yeah, they just got a real real bad gambling problem over there. They <laughs> they, they remodel homes like, uh, you know, like gangbusters. Like right. They're, they're great at it. But, but gambling... Uh, uh, it's just a real problem over there. So we're, we got thoughts and prayers with you guys. We appreciate you tuning in and listening, and uh, and we'll catch you uh, next week as well. Hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we've got two great guests today. Again, Hunter Gurichek, the athletic director at uh, the University of Houston, and Michael Rathburn, uh, Fantasy Rath on Twitter. Be- both great interviews, and uh, look forward to those here in just a few moments. And before we get into that, uh, I want to make sure that you follow us on our social media accounts. Just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, YouTube, and also set... Uh, and also check out our website, weeklybrewcast.com. Uh, we are actually starting to post more content on there. And uh, Kevin had a, a good article this past week. Ah, we'll, on the, uh, the, well, it was commentary, I guess. Opinion piece. Yeah. <laughs> 
but it was it was on the ESPN layoffs, and so go ahead and check that out as well. But we're gonna I write post- like twelve thousand words a week, <laughs> so it's difficult to fit other stuff. Right, in, but I, but I have wide ranging interests, so do check the website. I'll be posting stuff there periodically. Yeah, and I'll be having some uh, commentary there uh, also this week. So be had uh, be sure to check that out as well. But uh, we've got two great interviews on deck, and uh, leading off is Hunter Yurchek. So it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. All right. We welcome into The Weekly Brew Hunter Juracek, uh, the vice president of athletics at the University of Houston, took over from Mac Rhodes in 2015 after spending about a year as the associate vice president and chief operating officer for athletics. Uh, Hunter, welcome into the show. I mean, we're so glad to have you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Kevin. Thanks for having me on the show again. It is absolutely a pleasure, and you know we love. I'm a U of H guy. Austin's a Baylor guy. We both kind of compete. We had Mac Rhodes in the show in episode 88, and uh, I wanted to have you here just to give some balance to the listenership, at least. So I, we catch you at kind of what I think is a, a really auspicious time in University of Houston athletic history, or whatever. You know, uh, I was kind of reading some comments back from when you were hired. Tillman Fertitta said everybody wanted this job, and yet Hunter was so far above everybody else that we interviewed. Uh, he's our guy. Uh, what's uh, what was that? process like i guess because uh, you know it is a university obviously mac Rhodes, i think left it in a very good position uh, a lot of exciting things going on there and you wind up with the job there what was that process like and uh, and what's it like to have you know tillman fertita the the million dollar guy saying he's the one we want well i mean it, the process was what it was it was very um exciting very uh, energizing and if you've watched the billion dollar buyer I, I did sit in that conference room a couple of times across the, the phone bank that tillman has in there and <laughs> Um, he put me through the ringer and asked me several uh, tough and poignant questions, but uh, he's been a great mentor and a great leader and a great chair for the board at the University of Houston. And um, so I'm glad I came out on the top of that process. You mentioned Mac Rhodes and Mac did an incredible job in his five plus years here, uh, really getting uh, this athletic program turned around and headed in the right direction. And I'm so glad that I could be the one that followed Mac. Him and I have very similar philosophy and that I could just uh, take the handoff from him and keep uh, the ball moving forward. I'm certainly glad to hear that because I think that uh, that Mac Rhodes' philosophy is unimpeachable. We love that guy. We're glad to see him doing well wherever he is. But, uh, okay, so let's, let's talk about U of H. Uh, I think most recently, uh, second highest average attendance among group of five schools in terms of, uh, of football. You have the brand new TDECU Stadium. Uh, I think it was something like 38,953 you averaged out of 40,000 seats, which is pretty good there. Uh, so you talk about the direction the program is heading. What, what, are, what are those key points? What are the primary things that you feel like you need to focus on in order to keep U of H moving? moving forward, moving upward in this world of collegiate athletics? Sure. I mean, TDCU Stadium has done an unbelievable uh, kind of job in promoting our football program and getting us uh, to the top of that group of five, both from an attendance standpoint and from a competitive standpoint. I mean, facilities, um, that, that's what the young men and women that you're recruiting, uh, they come to your campus and, and they want to see uh, the bells and whistles. They want to see the, the shine and the glitz and the glamour and TDCU Stadium has done that for our football program. We're in the midst of building an indoor practice facility for our football program that will continue the momentum of that. We did a $1 million renovation to our football locker room. We're in the process of doing a $250 million, uh, $250,000, excuse me, renovation to our team meeting room. And that's just for football. And then you add to it a $60 million renovation to Hoffine Pavilion, our 
men's and women's basketball and volleyball facility that will open in the fall of 18 as the Fertitta Center. And that's the next big piece of the puzzle for us, just like TDCU Stadium was able to launch and catapult our football program. I believe the Fertitta Center will do the same for our men's basketball program and women's basketball program under the leadership of Kelvin Sampson and Ronald Huey. So facilities is really that piece um, that's really major and, and on my plate day in and day out. And it's just not obviously constructing the facilities and designing them. I've got to find a way as an athletic director to pay for those facilities outside of university funding. And we've got so many generous donors that have stepped up and helped us with TDC Stadium, the Fertitta Center, the indoor football practice facility, the Guy V. Lewis Development Facility. I can't say enough of uh, how many generous and, and just unbelievable donors we have at the University of Houston. And that Guy V. Lewis Development Center, I've been in there myself a number of times. It is spectacular. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe the Lakers came and practiced there at one point. You've had some other professional teams come in and kind of explore it. So I think it's really cool what's going on there. But but you'd mentioned, uh, I think it was a Houston Chronicle article that was written about you at the time that you were hired or promoted. And you'd said that uh, Hoffines, renovating Hoffines is our number one priority. So that looks to be taken care of. You had a $20 million gift from Tillman Fertitta, I guess, to get things started. It sounds like you're doing well with the giving and so forth. That seems like it's going to happen. What, what is the next priority for the university's uh, athletics programs? Well, um, I mean, after the Fertitta Center, really the next facility party, major facility party, is a football-only operations building that really mirrors what the Guy V. Lewis Development Facility is for a men's and women's basketball program, but a standalone football building that is equipped with the the latest in in, um, technology for our coaches' offices, our meeting rooms, a, a central locker room, weight training facility, training room, student-athlete lounge, and, and all the bells and whistles, kind of that one-stop place that our student-athletes associated with a football program can go and spend the majority of their time when they're not in class and not in their the residence hall room. This would be the, where they would go. And that, that's really the next piece of the puzzle to keep our football program moving forward and recruiting against uh, the top schools in the country for, for, for talented uh, prospective student-athletes. You talk about recruiting, and I have an interesting perspective. My day job involves covering a lot of prep sports in the Northwest area, areas like Cypher, Klein, Spring, things like that. Good athletes come out of there. And I've seen, uh, obviously, when Tom Herman was the head coach of the football program, there was a buzz that surrounded him. And I wondered how much of that buzz was Tom Herman and how much was Houston. Well, I, I still see a lot of excitement from the athletes that I cover day in, day out about the University of Houston, about what they offer. And when a student gets an offer from U of H, it seems to be just as momentous. So I was worried there would be some kind of drive off there but it seems like there hasn't been I mean from your perspective kind of looking out do do you see that same kind of excitement still was there any drop-off after losing Herman I don't think there was any drop-off at all I think you know obviously coach Herman did an incredible job really creating some buzz uh, not only around our football program but kind of reinvigorating our our entire athletic department and how we're perceived as an athletic program and um, I think he kind of set the table for us and uh, the coaches like Kelvin Sampson and now Major Applewhite, Todd Whitting, with Jonathan Dismuke. I mean, our coaches, um, they know how to recruit. And what Tom Herman did was really kind of open the door really to Houston and, and the surrounding area, the student athletes, high school student athletes in the area to, to show them how special this campus was. I'm amazed uh, day in and day out the number of uh, young men and women and their parents who will come on our campus who have not been to our campus and 10, 15, 20 years that are just blown away, not only by the athletic infrastructure, but the way the university infrastructure has changed. And, you know, from the old Cougar High where, you know, 90% of your students um, lived off campus to a a dynamic, thriving 
uh, on-campus living environment that has the second most uh, students living on campus. And if you drive around the campus, just the number of private uh, housing opportunities that are going up as well as private investors have gotten wind of how this university is growing. Well, you know, I spent about eight years in school at U of H. I should be a doctor by now, but uh, but I can certainly attest to the changes that I personally have seen just in the very recent history. It is uh, it is pretty spectacular, pretty magnificent. So so let's talk about the coaching. Uh, I, I think, unless I'm much mistaken, Applewhite's uh, promotion to the head coaching position would be like your first major hire uh, as AD, right? Uh, that would be correct, yes. So uh, let's talk about him first. He's a guy that for years and years, even when he was coaching at Texas, uh, people were saying he's a head coach and waiting. He's a guy that's being groomed. He's a guy that's ready for that. I've been hearing from people the last couple of years that Applewhite's ready to take that next step. W- what convinced you that he was the right guy for that job and was ready to take that next step and become a head coach of a major collegiate program? You know, during the uh, the summer of, of 2016, after, you know, we almost lost uh, Tom Herman in that first year, I spent some time during that summer getting to know both Major Applewhite and Todd Orlando, offensive and defense coordinators, a little bit better. And as I left that summer, we headed into the fall 2016 season. I knew that I had two uh, really very good head coaches in waiting on our staff. And I spent a lot of time studying the Boise State program and what's made them successful year in and year out in, in its continuity. They've, they've lost coaches to bigger jobs, but they filled back in with coaches that kind of had that Boise State mentality. And so when, when Tom got his opportunity to leave to go to the University of Texas, um, you know, Major Applewhite and Todd Orlando were, were two people that were very high on our list. And, um, you know, what separated Major um, – from, from Coach Orlando, both unbelievable candidates, but Major just had that Texas ties and um, high school coaches from around the state of Texas, high school student athletes from around the state of Texas. Everybody knows the name Major Applewhite, and um, he, he is an unbelievable head coach. He has deep-rooted ties um, to the state of Texas, even though he's from uh, the Baton Rouge area. And um, I think we've just got a gym. And what we're able to do by hiring him is our student athletes really – um, they've got the same message. You know, it was the same message within our strength and conditioning center, the same message at spring practice, the same routines. And a lot of times when you hire a new coach, they bring in an entirely new staff and a new system that your student athletes have to learn and sets them back a year. Our football program at the University of Houston was not broke when Tom Herman left, and Major Applewhite was a major part of developing the culture along with Tom Herman. And so that's really what set him apart and knew that we had a great head coach in waiting, and it was easy to name him as our head coach. I'm certainly excited to see what he does with the program. I know there is still a lot of excitement surrounding it. But you talk about losing coaches to bigger jobs. That's been the story at U of H for years and years and years. Even Coach Sampson, who is a dear friend and has been on this show a number of times, and we love Coach Sampson, but he uh, he had some adversity that kind of forced him out of uh, the job he was at at Indiana. He coached in the NBA for a little while. I think he was uh, maybe the biggest steal anyone's ever gotten in collegiate coaching, and, and we love the job that he's doing there. But, but it does seem like U of H is in this position where you talk about Boise State. There's always a bigger place to go to. I think ultimately what fans and boosters and everyone would like to see is U of H become a destination. I think that there have been different ways. Obviously, the, the the whole discussion, and Mac Rose talked about this in episode 88, he said Houston's got to get to a Power 5 conference somehow. Well, you notice the AAC added Wichita State as a basketball only. I think that really does improve that conference uh, in terms of what they're able to do basketball-wise. Is the path to success, the path to being a destination for these major coaches, major recruits, and so forth, is it strengthening the conference that you're already in, or is it uh, forming relationships and trying to, uh, to, to work out something else? 
Well, I think what separates us right now from, from Texas, Texas A&M and Baylor, which is where we've lost our, our last three football coaches, is, is dollars and cents. I mean, what they're able to offer from a contract standpoint. I mean, we, we had when we raised Tom Herman's salary to $3 million, um, I had to go out and fundraise privately $1.6 million uh, of his raise, and that was not something we have in our operational budget because of uh, the limited amount of tickets we sell and in the money we can raise in comparison to a school like a Texas, Texas A&M or Baylor. And so um, it, we're always, until we um, are a member of a conference and whether that's the American Athletic Conference gets a significant TV deal when we renegotiate our contract in 2019 or become a member of a conference that has a significant television deal where they're paying out 25, 30, 35 million dollars, we're, we're going to struggle to pay those top tier coaches in football and men's basketball really what they deserve to be paid at the University of Houston. And, and until we can change that, you know, there's a possibility we will always become a destination. Now, I think we're in great shape with Kelvin Sampson. I think Kelvin has at a point in his career where um, he's been able to touch and feel an Oklahoma and an Indiana, and he's been to a Final Four, and he's built programs at, at Power Five institutions. And I think he really sees an opportunity to return Houston to the greatness it saw under Guy V. Lewis and get this university and our basketball program back to a Final Four. So, Yeah, and hopefully uh, you know, even win it all, which, which Coach Lewis, uh, as much of a legend as he was, was never quite able to do. Famously, the NC State game I still have nightmares about, and I was barely born. But that didn't I'm happen. sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> but talking about the baseball program, you guys are doing really well. Uh, I think I saw – there's like 19 different polls, so I really have no idea. I saw a couple polls where you guys were top 25, doing pretty well, but there's been some controversy surrounding Seth Romero. Um, you know, I was reading uh, just a minute ago, you know, due to an event Tuesday, uh, this is Coach Todd Wedding said, um, along with previous conduct detrimental, etc. He's been removed from the Houston baseball program. You're talking about a kid who is, uh, you know, a very highly touted prospect. I think number 18 Baseball America uh, rates him there. So what what was the, the the thought process? You don't have to get into the specifics of what exactly he did. Those have been reported elsewhere. But but what, what was exactly the thought process in saying, hey, it doesn't matter how good this kid is. This is detrimental to our program and we've got to move on from it. I mean, it seems like a tough decision to make uh, for me. And I imagine it was for you as well. Absolutely. You know, um, being a student athlete is a privilege and it, and it comes with great responsibility and um, you're a member of a team. And when you're on a baseball team, you're, you're one of 35 people and, and you're held to a standard that everybody on a team is held for. And, and when you allow somebody, regardless of uh, their level of play, whether they're a star, or they're the 35th player in your team, everybody's got to follow suit in that same culture or you destroy the culture of your program. And uh, I mean, I think it, it got to a point, um, where, where, where Seth had made some decisions that were not in the best interest of him being a member of the, the University of Houston baseball team and being a student athlete at the University of Houston. And Coach Whitten and I were in agreement that uh, it was time for him just to, to focus his life on some other things outside of being a student athlete at the University of Houston. And it was in the best interest of those other 34 student athletes on the baseball program for that to happen as well. Well, I'm a, I'm a U of H fanboy, and so I'm certainly not objective, and I think people realize that. But I would applaud you on that decision. That does seem like uh, the right but tough call, and I think it's an encouraging sign. So David Bassett, who put us in touch, said that I had to ask you about the academic progress rate. And as I was looking recently, uh, for those that don't know that are listeners, uh, that measures eligibility, graduation, and retention each term and, quote-unquote, provides a clear picture of the academic performance for each team in every sport. Nine of 17 programs, I believe, scored higher than the NCAA average in their respective sports 
trips this year. How 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 well is that going for you guys? Because that's something that doesn't get talked about a lot with sports writers and sports reporting and so forth. But with collegiate athletics, it is part and parcel of the mission of you guys to serve and educate these these student athletes. I mean, is that uh, is that where you guys want it to be? Is that an area that you sort of take pride in? Absolutely. That is our number one. We talk about our mission of building champions for life. And the first part of that mission is providing opportunities for student athletes to have success academically. And we really grade ourselves on that success by being able to retain student athletes, keep them eligible and have them work towards leaving the University of Houston with their degree. And that's what the APR measures. And we had nine of our 17 programs that had a perfect score of a thousand this year in the single year APR one of those being our men's basketball program. And um, all of our coaches, starting with Coach Chance and Coach Affwhite, uh, they hold our student-athletes to a high level of accountability from an academic standpoint and understand the importance of each and every one of our student-athletes leaving the University of Houston with a degree. It, it's just not lip service on our part. And uh, Maria Peden, our Associate Athletic Director for Academic Services, and, and her incredible staff, they just do an amazing job with our student athletes and, and keeping them on track each and every semester and so that they are, uh, can graduate and receive a degree. We had a breakfast earlier this morning with about 50 student athletes. Unfortunately, our baseball, softball, track and field and golf teams couldn't participate in it, but we celebrated uh, their academic success and their graduation um, earlier today. So it, it, that's a major part and really the most important part of um, I truly believe that student athletes are students first, and that's why the the word student comes first. So, uh, one last question for you, then I'll let you go. I know you're very busy, but uh, uh, you know, I think that Houston is a remarkably rich recruiting bed. I mean, if you talk about being a university anywhere, there's almost nowhere geographically I think you'd rather be situated. And, and one of the keys, I think, to continuing to improve and be more competitive athletically is keeping those Houston kids home. And I'm seeing more and more of them say, yeah, this is a viable option to, to, to stay home here. What, what would you say to, I know a lot of student athletes listen to this podcast just because they followed me over from my daily coverage at Cypher Sports. What, what would you say to students that are kind of on the fence about, I don't know, U of H, you know, it's not Alabama, it's not Texas. Well, you know, what would you say to convince those students or to say, hey, give us a closer look? Well, first of all, I'm not sure that you can get a better education than you can at the University of Houston. First and foremost, you got to take a look at what uh, has changed and transpired academically, uh, regardless of whatever your, your academic pursuit may be. Uh, just an unbelievable academic experience, first and foremost, and the top job market in the United States. So think about that. When you graduate as a student athlete at the University of Houston, there's 165,000 alums that live within this area that can help you um, when you take that next step um, after graduation for your career. And then the second piece is the the athletic piece. And to to come and look at our infrastructure, look at all of our facilities, meet our coaches, and and just a a special place, I, I promise the student athletes in high school from this area that come that they will just be amazed at what the University of Houston has become. And third and finally, hey, your mom and dad have an easy trip down whatever interstate they pick that ties directly into downtown Houston to come to campus to see you play week in and week out. And if you want to go home, do your laundry, get a hot meal on a Sunday Sunday evening, they're right there as well. And so I think it's just a dynamic opportunity for a young man or woman to come here, be a student, and be an athlete at the University of Houston. What a special place. And it, you're going to benefit it many years down the road. Yeah, and again, I'm not uh, I'm not unbiased, but I wholeheartedly agree, and I tell all my student-athletes I run into the, the very same thing. Well, Hunter, I appreciate your time so much, man. In case uh, the listeners want to find you on social media, follow you on Twitter or whatever, how can they do so? 
Um, I, I'm on Twitter. I'm fairly active. Um, at Hunter Eurocheck is my Twitter handle, and uh, I'm not on Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, and those other things. So uh, that's the best way to communicate with me is uh, on Twitter. And uh, and certainly we encourage listeners to go do that. Well, hey, man, I thanks so much for your time, and uh, have a good rest of your day, man. Okay, Ken. Thank you very much. Great talking to you again. Anytime. You're listening to the Weekly Brew. Now on the podcast, you know we've we've discussed a lot of Astros baseball. We've discussed a lot of Major League Baseball, but uh, you guys know that we're kind of I don't want to call it degenerates, but we are gambling degenerates a little bit, and uh, especially we have a passion for sabermetrics, as you probably recall from our episode in January. Where we had Daryl Morey on the show, but uh, joining us right now to kind of dive into the Major League Baseball season and specifically the Houston Astros from a metric standpoint and kind of a you know an odds maker standpoint is Michael Rathburn, who. Uh, Michael, I, I, is it fair to call you just the stat guru for Major League Baseball? Uh, no, that's not fair, although I appreciate the, the praise. I'm certainly far from it. There's certainly guys out there that can that can definitely take me to school. But, um, you know, I definitely love, love the numbers of the game. And as the game has evolved, the numbers, you know, especially with things like StatCast um, and PitchFX and things like that, you know, it's just been incredible, some of the data that we've been able to capture and analyze. So, um, from that perspective, I do appreciate the numbers of the game, but but um, I'm by no means the guru. How much has baseball, you know, essentially changed in the last fifteen or twenty years from a, a from a metric standpoint? I mean, I remember growing up as a child and uh, having to rely on you know the Houston Chronicle and just the the stats that we saw in the paper. But you know, now it seems that stats are just available for everybody, and it's not just uh, you know wins and losses. It's going down to you know what you know. Lance McCullers throws in a 3-0 count. I mean, how much has that changed the game from a fan's perspective? Yeah, it's it's just been incredible. I mean, think about, you know, I'm I'm 42, so I'm definitely got some age, but um if you think about like when I was a kid, I got my stats off the back of a baseball card and it was, you know, games, runs, RBIs, home runs, you know, average. And that was about it. Um, and, and, you know, it was very like five or six statistics you know, and, and you look at doubles and triples and steals and things like that. But, you know, you're talking about like some basic statistics that, you know, everybody lived and died with on base percentage and, you know, that kind of on base started getting popular slugging percentage started getting popular. And then, you know, I was a huge fan of Bill James when I was a kid. And like, I was remember, I think in 80, in the 80, late eighties, uh, Bill James abstract, um, the green and yellow one. I think it might have had Ty Cobb on the front. I, I forget exactly who was on the front, Clemente or Cobb, but I just remember buying this huge, gigantic book at a bookstore that was like 350 pages or maybe even more. I don't know. Just some ungodly human like encyclopedia, and I just read that thing every single day. And I became hooked on stats because Bill James started creating his own stats. And I thought that was phenomenal that he was – you know, looking at the game in a totally different way and things like runs created and, and just, you know, all these things that started now we, we take for granted that he started to, you know, really develop. And then fan graphs came around. Fan graphs kind of took what Bill James did to a whole other level because now you get the presence of the Internet. And fan graphs has come a long way in, in the short, you know, in the time that they've been online and they've really been able to drive a lot of what, you know, fantasy baseball players look at. And uh, now with the advent of daily fantasy baseball, where you're playing every day and you're trying to predict what a player is going to do in a given day, you have to look at you know, and consider data that, you know, for, for a game that's highly variant. 
how much does that change, you know, just from your perspective as a fan of the game of baseball, how much does that change how you consume, uh, you know, the sport of baseball in the modern era? Well, because you're so much more focused on the entire league, um, you have a tendency of, like, instead of being a fan of your hometown team and just watching those games, you have an interest in all 30 teams in, in baseball. And so it just becomes a, a, where you become, you know, obviously I'm still, you know, I'm originally from Boston, so I'm a fan of the Red Sox, but I follow them deeply. But you really have more of an interest in the entire league, per se, not just like the AL East or your hometown team. Um, because you're playing fantasy, because there's so much more, it used to be where, you know, you were lucky to get one or two games uh, on, you know, and to be like your local games or your weekend games. And now, obviously, we have things like MLB Package, MLB.com, at bat. I mean, you literally can get any piece of information within 30 seconds that you want. So, from a consumption standpoint, it's just I think the the fans are so much more savvier than they were you know, say 5, 10, 20 years ago because we just have access to everything. Yeah, I know whenever I watch a baseball game, I always have a tweet deck up and always following kind of, you know, the random game notes and stats that come in. Uh, you know, even now it's just fun to watch after, you know, for example, George Springer or Carlos Correa hit a home run. You instantly know the, uh, you know, the, the, the trajectory of the home run, how hard it was hit. And to me, that's just fascinating and it adds so much to the game. But, uh, you know, kind of sticking with the Astros for a moment, obviously they're off to a very hot start after kind of struggling out of the gate in the 2016 season. I don't want to say they're running away with the AL West right now. Uh, As we're speaking, they do have a six-game lead on the Mariners in the West. But uh, this team seems to be doing it a lot differently than they have in years past. It's not necessarily uh, mashing the ball out of the park, but it's getting guys on base being aggressive on the base paths what can you tell us from a metrics perspective uh, that potentially sets the Astros up as a strong contender in the American League this year well I mean uh, they were my preseason and I'm not just saying this because you guys are from Houston but um, you know I was on record on other radio shows and on Twitter um, very high on the Astros and uh, you know felt like they would win the West felt like they would win the American League and and I do feel they're going to win the World Series uh, the biggest reason why I felt so, it, there's a lot of reasons. One, I love the, the move of McCann and getting Jason Castro out of the lineup, you know, and getting getting another good, solid veteran bat in the lineup. Uh, I love the Redick move as well, uh, you know, getting some more balance, getting a lefty, you know, more left-handed more presence, getting more balance up and down the lineup. Obviously, the signing of Guriel, Bregman being there the full season, and then adding uh, Beltran, and uh, while Beltran has been a huge disappointment so far this year, I actually really thought he was going to have a good year. I mean, hitting in the middle of that lineup, he was coming off a good year, even though he's old. Um, he was coming off a really good year, and I, I'm very surprised that he's just laid a dud. Even that, you know, if you look at this team, I love the balance in the lineup, and they have depth, which is something that not a lot of teams do. You know, when you have Gaddis and you have Marwin Gonzalez and Marisnik on the bench, that's a lot more depth than what most teams have. So I like the, the lineup up and down. I like the lefty-righty balance. I like the fact that they got depth. And then when you look at the rotation, again, it was more along the lines of some, some strong depth there in terms of maybe not an ace, but Keuchel did pitch better the second half of last year. Um, I'm a big fan of McCullers. Uh, you know, mostly the thing with him is health. Uh, McCullers does have that look of a future ace if he can get past the, you know, the health issue. 
And, um, I, you know, the fact that they had, in my opinion, the best bullpen in baseball up and down. I don't just look at the closer. I look at every single player in that bullpen. And their bullpen, you know, didn't really take any steps back. It's gotten stronger. So from my perspective, I just thought they had the best balanced team in baseball and also did not believe in the Rangers. I thought the Rangers were a fraud last year. Um, Cole Hamels is now hurt. And you Darvish is always an injury question mark, and he might even get traded. And if you look at that team, they really did it with, with smoke and mirrors last year. And the Angels and the A's are just so much farther away than Houston. So I think Houston's going to run away with the division. I think they're going to win 95 to 100 wins, 95 to 100 games. I think it's going to be them and the Indians in the, in the ALCS. You heard it here first, Astros to win 95 to 100 games. So if you're laying odds right now in Vegas, take Michael's advice. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Michael, uh, you know, specifically toward the lineup question, we'll get into the pitching staff here in just a moment. But, you know, you had mentioned Beltran kind of uh, struggling out of the gate. He has kind of stepped it up a little bit, hitting over 300 in his last eight games. But one of the guys, there are two guys really that have surprised me this year. Nori Aoki, who uh, he takes like a, almost a calculated approach at the plate, uh, you know, kind of almost slapping the ball into different parts of the field. And he's provided depth, especially at the bottom of the lineup. But then you also mentioned Marwin Gonzalez, and he was a guy who just last week, you know, carrying over to the Rangers series, hit five home runs in five games at four different positions. I mean, how valuable is it to have those type of players that you can insert anywhere in the lineup? Yeah, I mean, Aoki's a guy that, you know, he's either, you know, either hit first or ninth, uh, you know, decent in, in the field, but just doesn't give you a lot at this point at 35 years of age. So, you know, good fourth outfielder. But then again, if you look at this team, they've got a guy like that in Jake Marisnik. So I'm not sure how much Aoki really brings uh, at this point. I wasn't really one uh, – that that move to me kind of scratched my head a little bit. The Marlon Gonzalez thing is, look, this is a day and age where more teams are carrying – teams are carrying pitchers over bench players. So in the past, the team might carry five, six guys on the bench, and now they're carrying like three or four. So players that can play multiple positions like Amar Wynn-Gonzalez are hugely valuable in Major League Baseball right now. And they're hugely valuable in, in fantasy baseball because they can play all over the place. Marlon Gonzalez has been a guy who's just kind of hung around in the Astros system, and he's just never never gone away. And now he's going to get – I think they've got to start giving him more playing time. They've got to move him around, especially as you get into the summer months. You want to start giving guys rest. Uh, you want to start playing matchups. Look, some of these guys are slumping. Maybe it's time to give certain players a rest. Um, He can play all over the field, and at this point, you could argue he's a team MVP. Yeah, he's been so much fun to watch, and especially to see him develop from a guy that was you know, hitting around the Mendoza line, but he can bring it from both sides of the plate, and uh, I believe he's leading the club in home runs as we are recording this. Uh, but, uh, you know, you had mentioned the pitching staff and having probably one of the best bullpens in baseball, and uh, the guy, to me, that sticks out is not the closer. It's Davinsky. How important is it to have a guy who's that young, who has that nasty of a change-up, and can come in in those high-leverage situations to get the big outs, whether it's in the sixth or the ninth? Yeah, I mean, he he's a kind of a throwback to what what teams used to do in like the 70s and the 80s. And there was a, a term called the fireman. And before the reliever, um, you know, the, the the closer really didn't have there wasn't never really that closer role. Um, it was just a guy who was considered the best guy in the bullpen and then all of a sudden, you know, the fireman term kind of got lost, but he's a kind of a throwback to the fireman. 
And one of the teams that I always look at that I remember following when I was a kid is go back and look at some of those 80s Mets teams, Mm -hmm. Uh, the 85, the 86, 87 Mets. They had four or five guys in the bullpen bullpen getting double-digit wins. I mean, it's just unheard of nowadays. Like, you know, they just – and they had guys throwing 100 to 120 innings coming out of the pen, whether it was McDowell, Darling, um, Ojeda, you know, uh, Jesse Orozco, just all these guys. Um, there's another guy, Rick Aguilera, that they have. I'm just naming off all these guys that were – I mean, if you look at those Mets teams, the reason why – yeah, they had good and they had strawberry, et cetera. But, man, that, that pen was a huge factor in why they won games every year. And um, The Astros, to me, remind me a lot of those Mets teams. Yeah, and I, you know, you mentioned the Astros are the favorites probably uh, in the American League and potentially being challenged by the Indians. And of course, they've got the series uh, they're playing right now against the Yankees. But when you look at the American League right now, uh, Boston's you know kind of hovering around the 500 mark right now. Uh, Chris Sale's doing his thing, but uh, that American League East I, is is that going to be really competitive down uh, toward the end of the summer as we get into uh, you know August and September? Yeah, it doesn't look like any team there is really poised to kind of pull away. Uh, no team is really built that way in that division. Um, now, if Price comes back and, and is healthy, you know, that might be a different story. But I think that at this point, you know, it's certainly going to be in, you know, 87, 88, 89 wins probably that's going to win. And it's going to be a tight race uh, between the Orioles, Yankees, and the Red Sox, you would expect. Um, I do expect the Indians to kind of, you know, get ahead here. Although, you know, in some injuries now in, in the pitching staff, Getting Kipnis back is huge. Getting Encarnacion going is going to be huge. I do expect the Indians to probably make a trade. I think they definitely need another pitcher uh, for sure. They can't get by with Clevenger and Tomlin. They, that's just not going to get it done. So got to think the Indians are going to be in play for a starter. Obviously, Houston's going to be in play for a starter, although I don't think they're as desperate as the Indians are. Um, and, uh, again, I see Houston pulling away in this AL West. And I just don't see any of these three teams being anywhere near the talent level that Houston has at this point. Who are starters that you could see potentially being traded at the deadline? I mean, I, I know each year it, it, there's always some random guy. I, I think back to the 90s when Randy Johnson was traded and that kind of uh, that kind of surprised people. But is, is it doesn't seem like the free agent market right now is, I don't know, that great. Uh, who could you see the Astros or the Indians possibly pursuing as we get closer to the trade deadline? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard right now. Um, so many guys are hurt, and, and so that's going to throw a monkey wrench into things. I wrote down a couple guys. I think I've been very high on Trevor Cahill coming into the year, and I thought he was in a really good spot with San Diego, and he's been pitching pretty good. He's been getting a lot of strikeouts, a lot of ground balls. I think he's a guy that, you know, they were able to get Pomerantz last year and turn him into a really big haul. Uh, and I can see them doing the same thing with Cahill. I think that uh, some team is going to have to pay up and get a guy like Cahill. He's a, he's a reliable mid, middle of the rotation, um, reliable arm. So I can see Cahill getting some buzz. Um, obviously, you know Jose Quintana has been a name that's been thrown out there. He's been rumored to Houston right. for a long time. Uh, the White Sox have not pulled the trigger on that as of yet. Um, so that would be a guy that you know if they don't want to trade. If the Indians and the Astros are going to be the two teams in the American League that are really going to be looking for a starting pitcher, you've got to think the White Sox are probably not going to want to deal Quintana to Cleveland, and maybe they would be more apt to moving him to Houston. So it's just a matter of um, they've got a lot of holes, and 
you know, the Astros have a very deep minor league system, so they could give them, you know, two or three pretty good pieces. Um, one of the guys, and I'm not 100% sure on this, but I was just starting to think of the teams that are in last place. I believe Johnny Cueto's contract situation is that he may have an opt-out after this year. And I don't know how that would affect him this year, but it might be a situation where if the Giants are completely out of it, which it looks like they're going to be, and Bumgarner's hurt, you know, does a guy like Johnny Cueto get on the market? And if so, I think Houston, without a doubt, is going to back up the truck and get and go get a guy like that because that could win them World Series. Yeah, it's it's very unfortunate that uh, Bumgarner had the uh, what was it the the dirt bike accident. But uh, when you look at the National League, we haven't spent a lot of time. Uh, you know, Nationals had the pitching staff. The Mets are kind of a cluster right now in in the AL East. But uh, to me, the surprising thing is in the uh, the, the NL Central. Uh, the Cubs. I mean, granted, they're just two and a half games back at the time of recording. Uh, they're hovering around five hundred, and I think this is a team that a lot of people had is the odds-on favorite to, you know, repeat as World Series champions. Why haven't they been able to click on all cylinders this year? Yeah, I actually didn't, um, and I kind of got into it with some people on that. Um, I did not like the Cubs coming into the season. Uh, that being said, I certainly didn't predict that they were going to be a 500 team. I, I would n- never be able to do that. Um, but there were two teams that I was I was most high on coming into the season uh, were the Houston Astros and the St. Louis Cardinals. And I really felt like the way the Cardinals were set up, much like Houston, where they had a lot of depth, maybe didn't have this outstanding, you know, ace pitcher, but just had some pretty good depth in the organization, in the lineup, in the bullpen, and in the starting rotation, and had the ability to go make a trade if they could. I felt like St. Louis was going to be a team that could push the Cubs this year. Um, And so, you know, they, they haven't really played all that great, and they're sitting in first place right now. Um, a lot of things happened with the Cubs I didn't like. Um, one of them was that um, they went with a fifth starter and Brett Anderson over Mike Montgomery, and I thought that was a bad decision from day one, and we've seen that blown up. Uh, Kyle Schwarber playing in the field defensively is a liability. Uh, Dexter Fowler not being in the leadoff spot and not being in center field was also a huge loss for them that I think a lot of people didn't take into consideration. So when you replace a guy like that, you know, with the John Jays or the Almoras or the Zob- you know Zobrist is just not the same guy anymore. Um, I felt like, you know, and a lot of their pitchers last year kind of over overachieved, and Arietta started to really regress at the second half of last year. So right. to me, I know it sounds, you know, hindsight with 34 games in. I didn't like what the Cubs had on paper, and I didn't think that it was a slam dunk that they were going to win 95 to 100. Um, but I did certainly feel they would win the Central and be a playoff team, but maybe not necessarily come out of the NL. And speaking of other NL teams, let's go ahead and round it out with the NLS. Obviously, the Giants uh, having injury issues, sitting at the bottom of the uh, the division. But uh, Rockies challenging the Dodgers is that sustainable for the uh, the remainder of the season? I don't think so because the the starting pitching is ultimately what's going to carry you through the season. And well, they haven't had Ian Desmond, and they got Desmond back, and they haven't had David Dahl. Um, look, the Rockies have a very good bullpen, and they did something very smart. And they realize, hey, we're not going to go get a bunch of ace pitchers. We're not going to spend a ton of money on pitchers because we see that it doesn't work. So we're going we're gonna to invest in our bullpen so our starters only have to go five or six. We're going to go get a bunch of ground ball strikeout guys that can throw five or six innings, and then we're going to hand it over to the bullpen. And the Greg Holland signing right now is looking like the signing of the year. 
And so the Greg Holland signing and just the way that their their approach, and this is with Cargo Gonzalez basically doing nothing. So um, I don't think it's sustainable, uh, and I think that eventually the Dodgers will be the team that you know comes out of the West. But if you really look at the Diamondbacks and you look at that lineup, you know, no A.J. Pollock last year, no David Peralta last year. Um, those were two guys that were sorely missed. And I don't think a lot of people really understood how valuable those two guys were. And now they're back, and they're a very deep lineup. Guys like Chris Owings, Brandon Jury are stepping up. Jake Lamb is becoming a superstar. Goldschmidt obviously is the anchor in that team and that lineup. And Yosemite Tomas is becoming a you know a feared right-handed power hitter. So, um, you know, for me, I think it's it's the Dodgers and the Diamondbacks, and I think the Rockies will end up in third. Uh, eventually, just talent's going to play out there. I know Kevin will probably get on to me because it's uh, NBA postseason right now, but uh, to me, my focus is just on baseball, and I it it's I, I don't know. I I love talking metrics and stats and just getting into that. It's something that I've really enjoyed since I was uh, a young child. But uh, again, we've got Michael Rathburn joining us on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And uh, Michael, you've got uh, a daily fantasy baseball almanac that you put out. Uh, and of course, your Twitter handle is Fantasy Rath. Uh, for people that you know whether they play day- daily fantasy sports or have a, uh, you know, a league that they're in or just want to know more information about, you know, beyond the numbers, beyond the box scores. Uh, tell us a little bit about your almanac and kind of what that provides. Well, picture this, you know, picture, ha- you know, what's the biggest frustration that you have um, when it comes to fantasy baseball, whether it's season long or daily, it's the amount of time and the amount, number of websites you got to go to to find information and statistics. So basically what I did is I took all the pertinent statistics from 2016 and I put them in Excel and I made like like little player cards where it's it's like 20 lines of data. All the stats are right there. And I give you the splits, the home, the road, the, the left-handed bats, right-handed bats, you know, what they did on each month, what they did first half, second half, and the true first half, second half, not post-All-Star break and pre-All-Star break, but actually, you know, the first three months of the year, second three months of the year. Um, some of the Vegas information's in there in terms of starting pitchers. You know, what are they what are they usually favored? How much are the run totals in each game? And that's very highly predictive uh, numbers that you can look at. And just imagine having all of that information at your fingertips in one Excel file, where you have 225 pitchers, 375 hitters, and the ability to just look anybody up at any given point you know, and looking at what they did in 2016 and how you can use that um, currently in season-long fantasy or in daily. It's been a huge, valuable tool for me. It's something I've always been doing on my own, and I wanted to kind of bring it, uh, you know, out to the public. So how, how did you get your start? I mean, you've been doing, you know, covering essentially fantasy baseball for, you know, 20, 25 years. What was it that inspired you to kind of go down this career path? Well, I got, you know, it was kind of, I started playing in the early 90s. I started playing football, and then I got into baseball, and I've always been a huge baseball fan, and I always collected baseball cards. And then when the baseball card industry kind of fade, faded away, uh, fantasy baseball kind of became more prevalent, more pro- more popular, and it kind of took the place of collecting baseball cards. And so it was a way to be interactive with the game and also involve the stats and have your team and things like that. So, um you know, that's really how it how it developed. And then over periods of time, I just, you know, the advent of the Internet, Twitter, social media, you start getting, you know, recognized. People give you opportunities and, um, you know, you just start putting stuff out there. And I always try to be very unique in everything I do. And 
I've just tried to do something that no one else was already writing about and I carved a niche and, you know, been able to been able to do it for quite some time. Uh, but again, we've got Michael Rathburn joining us on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And Michael, uh, for those that kind of want to follow you on Twitter or learn more about your daily fantasy baseball almanac, uh, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? At Twitter, uh, the handle is at Fantasy Rath, um, R-A-T is in Tom, H is in Harry. And uh, if anybody is listening to this podcast and uh, you tweet at me and you follow me, uh, just let me know that you heard me on this podcast. And then anybody that does that, I will grant, you know, I'll pick one person uh, that, you know, follows me from this radio show, from this podcast uh, to get a free book and I'll email it to you. That's a, that's a huge, huge gift. So make sure that you follow him and uh, tweet at Michael's. So that's at Fantasy Wrath. And uh, Michael, it's been a lot of fun. We definitely appreciate you joining us this week. You got it, man. Thanks. Closing time. Another great episode of the Weekly Brew Podcast. Thanks to Hunter Juracek, the athletic director at uh, the University of Houston. Also, thanks to Michael Rathburn for uh, joining me and in talking baseball. And he's high on the Astros. He said they were going to win 95 to 100 games. Calls the Rangers a fraud. He suggests that uh, Johnny Cueto could be a trade target for the Astros. Great stuff all around today, Kevin. Yeah, I love Rath, and I, unfortunately, I was sick when we when you recorded that interview. I would have loved to have been on it, um, but it was terrific stuff, and I heard it after the fact, of course. And uh, you know, just got, we we scour the world to find the best at what they do, and that guy is the guy for daily fantasy sports and any sort of sabermetric analysis of how you apply baseball stats to fantasy sports. So it's a fascinating field for me. And then Hunter Juracek, what can I say? You know, the guy is the AD at uh, my alma mater, and uh, I'm just. Just filled with love, even thinking about U of H. So. Yeah, it's great that we've had uh, both athletic directors from our alma maters on in the past month and a half. I mean, of course, we had... That was uh, how I pitched it to Bassett. I said, hey, Mac <laughs> Rhodes came on. I, I hate giving all this airtime to Baylor. We need somebody from U of H to go on. Yeah, so it was great to have both Mac Rhodes on a few a few weeks back, and also Hunter Juracek on uh, this week's episode. But uh, also, Michael Rathburn, thanks for him for coming on the show. And you can follow him at Fantasy Rath on social media, on Twitter. And if you tell him that you heard uh, his interview on the podcast, you can potentially win uh, his... Uh, fantasy baseball almanac for it's a $25 value and i highly recommend it if you are a daily fantasy sports player if you have one of those year-long leagues uh it, it's very time consuming and he basically does all the dirty work for you what's well, listed at $25 i would argue the value is somewhere between $800 a thousand dollars something oh, like that right? yeah easily especially so. if you if you if you gamble but you could yeah. buy it from from amazon for $25 or if you tweet at him and tell him you heard him here you, you get it free yeah so tweet michael rathburn uh that's at fantasy wrath but uh kevin uh, disappointing week overall with the uh, the rockets but uh the astros continue to play well uh texans uh opened uh rookie minicamp uh this week and uh i think the positive is there were no major injuries coming out of it we we always hear about a first round pick suffering some sort of injury i think it was a few years ago for jacksonville something similar to that happened but yeah i I think it's a good week football is finally starting to take shape we'll get into otas here in just a few weeks Uh, jj watt had his uh charity softball classic at minute maid park are you a little excited about football season now that the rocket season is complete. Well, you know, we're going from the sport that I love most dearly to a sport that is probably killing people uh, very early relative to when they would naturally die. So, you know, it's there's there's still that hanging overall. It's still a very violent sport but innately, inherently. And and it's still we have the same issues we talked about with Steve Allman almost two years ago now. And I, I haven't gotten over them. and I haven't resolved them. So, I, you know, yeah, I'm excited for football because football keeps the lights on everywhere that does sports. But uh but I still had the same trepidation and concerns I had this time two years ago. 
Yeah. Did you see that report about uh, Tristan DeCount, who is a uh, recent draft pick for the uh, the Texans? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess he, he he went to what was it Oregon, Oregon State, and I guess they're on the quarter system because of some like ridiculous rules from the NFL. He's not going to be able to fully participate in some offseason workouts. Does that kind of concern you a little bit? What in the hell is the NFL doing with this rule anyway? How does it benefit them? Like, don't you want that guy there if you're any team in the NFL? You know, why does that rule exist? Why are they kowtowing to the NCAA? Yeah, I, I have no idea. It, it seems like the, I don't know, we always see the NFL just kind of let certain players play who probably shouldn't. Uh, Joe Mixon, for example, drafted in the second round by the, uh, what was it, the Bengals. And then we see Josh Gordon, who has a problem with pot, who was not reinstated by the NFL this year. And, and Ridiculous. We, it, yeah, and then we, so we, I don't know, to me, that's kind of frustrating. And we see uh, DeKoud, who, you know, obviously spent time training for the Combine, uh, but just because of when this, the calendar year ends for, you know, his academic calendar, he's not allowed to spend all the time possible with the Texans. That, there, that's frustrating for Bill O'Brien. And it's weird because those those quarter schedule schools need to quit it or something because Stanford always loses out <laughs> because they can't recruit. You know, they cannot have kids uh, be declared academically eligible and give them offers at the same rate other schools can. So this early signing thing is going to kill Stanford. They're not going to be good at football in the next four or five years. Yeah, so we'll see. That's something to uh, continue to follow. But uh, Texans, minicamp in the books. Deshaun Watson looked good from all reports uh, at minicamp. Of Best quarterback in the draft, according to John McClain yeah, on this show. We, yeah, we definitely like it. So uh, disappointing end to the season for the Rockets. Astros are doing well. Texans, a lot of room for encouragement. Uh, another great interview on the Weekly Brew podcast this week. We had two of them, Hunter Yurchek and, of course, Michael Rathburn. And uh, we also have a, uh, a review this week, Kevin. Oh, yeah. You, I, you just fired me up. I'd actually forgotten about it. It's a, it's a really good review. So, you know, we've had, they're all good reviews. We like the five stars. We need them. Uh, someone asked me recently, I haven't told this in a while, if you're on mobile, uh, go to the podcast app, then go to search, which is on the far right, actually search for the name of our podcast, The Weekly Brew, and pull up our podcast page from there. The middle tab will be reviews and you can write one. So don't just look at your unplayed list where it lists the episodes or whatever. But be that as it may. Uh, a new review here, and this one is pretty special, I would argue. It's from Slam09726184624. Hope that's not as social. <laughs> um, consistently entertaining, five stars. Well, thank you. As an avid listener of Sports Radio 610, we love those guys, the podcast was a pleasant surprise. With topics that cover both national and Houston-specific stories, the team provides honest and informative opinions in the sports world. Gives me a pocket version of 610 with its countless number of high-profile guests and influential journalists. As an aspiring storyteller, this show gives food for thought and is downright fun to listen to. That's powerful. That's powerfully good stuff. That's the, like that's the exact kind of review that we want on Thoughtful, the show. Specific, right? Well written. It's complimentary. Let's get well. this guy on the show. This might be our next host. <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, it actually, great I know it's Pete, Pete Scamardo, who's a sports writer and obviously a very talented writer as well. So we appreciate him <laughs> leaving that review for us. Well, we appreciate the review, Pete. And uh, you know, if you want to continue to follow our work, uh, search us Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Uh, we provide great content content there. Also, search weeklybrewcast.com. Uh, that's our website. We post. Uh, we're we're posting more regularly now on the website. Doing and, more uh, stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to follow uh, me personally on Twitter, you can search at a Staten. Of course, you can also search at K Michael Cook. And uh, in fact, you must. You, you should. We've talked about this before. You don't follow me because you want to see the things that I tweet. You follow me because you want to show people you support me and you, you know me and you listen to uh, absolutely so support the podcast support us support your hosts uh, we thank all of you for listening in the past few weeks we've had some great guests and again thanks to hunter yurichak and michael rathburn for joining us on this week's show and uh on behalf of my co-host this week kevin cook my name is austin staten we'll see you next week and guys remember no matter who you are where you go or what you do this week always always 
tell your mother you love her. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 